Part 8 of The Naval War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 8. To return now to the Hornet. This vessel had continued blockading the Bon Citoyen until January 24th, when the Montague 74 arrived toward evening and chased her into port. As the darkness came on, the Hornet War stood out to sea, passing into the open without molestation from the 74, and then steered toward the northeast, cruising near the coast and making a few prizes, among which was a brig, the Resolution, with $23,000 in specie aboard, captured on February 14th. On the 24th of February, while nearing the mouth of the Demarara River, Captain Lawrence discovered a brig to leeward, and chased her till he ran into quarter less five, when, having no pilot, he hauled off shore. Just within the bar, a man-of-war brig was lying at anchor, and while beating round Carabond Bank in order to get at her, Captain Lawrence discovered another sail edging down on his weather-quarter. Footnote. Letter of Captain Lawrence, March twenty-ninth, eighteen thirteen. End of footnote. The brig at anchor was the Espigle, of eighteen guns, thirty-two pound carronades. Captain John Taylor. Footnote. James, volume six, page two seventy-eight. End of footnote. And the second brig seen was the Peacock, Captain William Peake. Footnote. James, volume six page 278 and a footnote which for some unknown reason had exchanged her 32 pound carronades for 24s she had sailed from the espigles anchorage the same morning at 10 o'clock at 4:20 p.m. the peacock hoisted her colors then the hornet beat to quarters and cleared for action captain lawrence kept close by the wind in order to get the weather gauge when he was certain he could weather the enemy he tacked at five ten and the hornet hoisted her colors the ship and the brig now stood for each other both on the wind the hornet being on the starboard and the peacock on the port tack and at five twenty five they exchanged broadsides at half pistol shot distance while going in opposite directions, the Americans using their lee and the British their weather battery. The guns were fired as they bore, and the peacock suffered severely, while her antagonist's hull was uninjured, though she suffered slightly aloft, and had her pennant cut off by the first shot fired. Footnote Cooper, page 200, end of footnote. One of the men in the mizzen-top was killed by a round-shot, and two more were wounded in the main-top. Footnote. See entry in her log for this day, in log-book of Hornet, Wasp, and Argus, from July twentieth, 1809, to October sixth, 1813, in the Bureau of Navigation at Washington. End of footnote. As soon as they were clear, Captain Peake put his helm hard up and wore, firing his starboard guns. But the Hornet 
had watched him closely bore up as quickly and coming down at five thirty five ran him close aboard on the starboard quarter captain peake fell at this moment together with many of his crew and unable to withstand the hornet's heavy fire the peacock surrendered at five thirty nine just fourteen minutes after the first shot and directly afterward hoisted her ensign union down in the fore-rigging as a signal of distress almost immediately her mainmast went by the board both vessels then anchored and lieutenant j t shubrick being sent on board of the prize reported her sinking lieutenant d connor was then sent in another boat to try to save the vessel but though they threw the guns overboard plugged the shot holes tried the pumps and even attempted bailing the water gained so rapidly that the hornet's officers devoted themselves to removing the wounded and other prisoners and while thus occupied the short tropical twilight left them immediately afterward the prize settled suddenly and easily in five and a half fathoms water carrying with her three of the hornet's people and nine of her own who were rummaging below meanwhile four others of her crew had lowered her damaged stern-boat and in the confusion got off unobserved and made their way to the land the foretop still remained above water and four of the prisoners saved themselves by running up the rigging into it lieutenant connor and midshipman cooper who had also come on board saved themselves together with most of their people and the remainder of the peacock's crew by jumping into the launch which was lying on the booms and paddling her toward the ship with pieces of boards in default of oars the hornet's complement at this time was one hundred fifty of whom she had eight men absent in a prize and seven on the sick list footnote letter of captain lawrence and a footnote leaving one hundred thirty five fit for duty in the action footnote letter of lieutenant d connor april twenty sixth eighteen thirteen and a footnote of these one man was killed and two wounded all aloft her rigging and sails were a good deal cut a shot had gone through the foremast and the bowsprit was slightly damaged the only shot that touched her hull merely glanced athwart her bows indenting a plank beneath the cathead the peacock's crew had amounted to one hundred thirty four but four were absent in a prize and but one hundred twenty two footnote letter of lieutenant f w wright of the peacock april seventeenth eighteen thirteen and a footnote fit for action of these she lost her captain and seven men killed and mortally wounded and her master one midshipman and twenty-eight men severely and slightly wounded in all eight killed and thirty wounded or about thirteen times her antagonist's loss she suffered under the disadvantage of light metal having twenty-fours opposed to thirty-twos but judging from her gunnery this was not much of a loss as six pounders would have inflicted nearly as great damage she was well handled and bravely fought but her men showed a marvellous ignorance of gunnery 
it appears that she had long been known as the yacht on account of the tasteful arrangement of her deck the breechings of the carronades were lined with white canvas and nothing could exceed in brilliancy the polish upon the traversing bars and elevating screws footnote james volume six page two hundred eighty end of footnote in other words captain peak had confounded the mere incidents of good discipline with the essentials footnote codrington memoirs volume one page three hundred ten comments very forcibly on the uselessness of a mere martinet End of footnote. the hornet's victory cannot be regarded in any other light than as due not to the heavier metal but to the far more accurate firing of the americans had the guns of the peacock been of the largest size they could not have changed the result as the weight of shot that did not hit is of no great moment any merchant ship might have been as well handled and bravely defended as she was and an ordinary letter of mark would have made as creditable a defence during the entire combat the espigle was not more than four miles distant and was plainly visible from the hornet but for some reason she did not come out and her commander reported that he knew nothing of the action till the next day captain lawrence of course was not aware of this and made such exertions to bend on new sails stow his boats and clear his decks that by nine o'clock he was again prepared for action footnote letter of captain lawrence and footnote and at two p m got under way for the northwest being now overcrowded with people and short of water he stood for home anchoring at holmes hole in martha's vineyard on the nineteenth of march on their arrival in new york the officers of the peacock published a card expressing in the warmest terms their appreciation of the way they and their men had been treated say they we ceased to consider ourselves prisoners and everything that friendship could dictate was adopted by you and the officers of the hornet to remedy the inconvenience we would otherwise have experienced from the unavoidable loss of the whole of our property and clothes owing to the sudden seeking of the peacock footnote quoted in full in niles register and lossing's field book and a footnote this was signed by the first and second lieutenants the master surgeon and purser hornet tonnage four hundred eighty guns ten weight of metal two hundred seventy nine pounds men one hundred thirty five loss of three peacock tonnage four hundred seventy seven guns ten metal two hundred ten pounds men one hundred twenty two loss thirty eight hornet relative force one point zero zero relative inflicted loss one point zero zero peacock relative force point eight three relative loss inflicted point o eight that is the forces standing nearly as thirteen to eleven the relative execution was about as thirteen is to one the day after the capture captain lawrence reported two hundred seventy seven souls aboard including the crew of the english brig resolution which he had taken 
and of the American brig Hunter, prize to the peacock. As James, very ingeniously, tortures these figures into meaning what they did not, it may be well to show exactly what the 277 included. Of the Hornet's original crew of 150, eight were absent in a prize, one killed and three drowned, leaving, including seven sick, 138. Of the Peacock's original 134, four were absent in a prize, five killed, nine drowned and four escaped, leaving, including eight sick and three mortally wounded, 112. There were also aboard 16 other British prisoners and the hunter's crew of eleven making just two hundred seventy seven footnote the two hundred seventy seven men were thus divided into hornet's crew one thirty eight peacock's crew one hundred twelve resolution's crew sixteen hunter's crew eleven james quotes two hundred seventy men which he divides as follows hornet one hundred sixty peacock one hundred one hunter nine leaving out the resolution's crew eleven of the peacocks and two of the hunters and a footnote according to lieutenant connor's letter written in response to one from lieutenant wright there were in reality one hundred thirty nine in the peacock's crew when she began action but it is of course best to take each commander's account of the number of men on board his ship that were fit for duty on January 17th, the Viper, 12, Lieutenant J.D. Henley, was captured by the British frigate Narcissus, 32, Captain Lumley. On February 8th, while a British squadron, consisting of the four frigates, Belvedere, Captain Richard Byron, Maidstone, Junon, and Statira, were at anchor in Linhaven Bay, a schooner was observed in the northeast, standing down chesapeake bay footnote james volume six page three hundred twenty five end of footnote this was the lottery letter of mark of six twelve-pound carronades and twenty-five men captain john sothcombe bound from baltimore to bombay nine boats with two hundred men under the command of lieutenant kelly nazar were sent against her and a calm coming on overtook her the schooner opened a well-directed fire of round and grape but the boats rushed forward and boarded her not carrying her till after a most obstinate struggle in which captain southcombe and nineteen of his men together with thirteen of the assailants were killed or wounded the best warship of a regular navy might be proud of the discipline and courage displayed by the captain and crew of the little lottery captain byron on this as well as on many another occasion showed himself to be as humane as he was brave and skilful captain southcombe mortally wounded was taken on board byron's frigate where he was treated with the greatest attention and most delicate courtesy and when he died his body was sent ashore with every mark of the respect due to so brave an officer captain stewart of the constellation wrote captain byron a letter of acknowledgment for his great courtesy and kindness footnote the correspondence between the two captains is given in full in niles register which also contains fragmentary notes on the action 
principally as to the loss incurred. End of footnote. On March 16th, a British division of five boats and 105 men, commanded by Lieutenant James Polkinghorne, set out to attack a privateer schooner Dolphin of 12 guns and 70 men, and the letters of Mark Racer, Arab, and Lynx, each of six guns and 30 men. Lieutenant Polkinghorne, after pulling 15 miles, found the four schooners all prepared to receive him but in spite of his great inferiority in force, he dashed gallantly at them. The Arab and Lynx surrendered at once. The racer was carried after a sharp struggle in which Lieutenant Polkinghorn was wounded and her guns turned on the dolphin. Most of the latter's crew jumped overboard. A few rallied round their captain, but they were at once scattered as the British seamen came aboard. The assailants had thirteen, and the privateersmen sixteen men killed and wounded in the fight. It was certainly one of the most brilliant and daring cutting-out exhibitions that took place during the war, and the victors well deserved their success. The privateersmen, according to the statement of the Dolphin's master in Niles' register, were panic-struck and acted in anything but a brave manner. All irregular fighting men do their work by fits and starts. No regular cruisers could behave better than did the privateers Lottery, Chasseur, and General Armstrong. None would behave as badly as the Dolphin, Lynx, and Arab. The same thing appears on shore. Jackson's irregulars at New Orleans did as well, or almost as well, as Scott's troops at Lundy's Lane, but Scott's troops would never have suffered from such a panic as overcame the militia at Bladensburg. On April ninth, the schooner Norwich, of fourteen guns and sixty-one men, sailing master James Monk, captured the British privateer Caledonia, of ten guns and forty-one men, after a short action in which the privateer lost seven men. On April 30th, Commodore Rogers in the President, 44, accompanied by Captain Smith in the Congress, 38, sailed on his third cruise. Footnote. Letter of Commodore Rogers, September 30th, 1813. End of footnote. On May 2nd, he fell in with and chased the British sloop Curlew, 18, Captain Michael Head, but the latter escaped by knocking away the wedges of her masts and using other means to increase her rate of sailing on the eighth in latitude thirty nine degrees thirty minutes north longitude sixty degrees west the congress parted company and sailed off toward the southeast making four prizes of no great value in the north atlantic footnote letter of captain smith december fifteenth eighteen thirteen end of footnote when about in longitude thirty-five degrees west she steered south passing to the south of the line but she never saw a man-of-war and during the latter part of her cruise not a sail of any kind and after cruising nearly eight months returned to portsmouth harbor on december fourteenth having captured but four merchantmen being unfit to cruise longer 
owing to her decayed condition she was disarmed and laid up nor was she sent to sea again during the war footnote james states that she was blockaded in port by the tenedos during part of eighteen fourteen but was too much awed by the fate of the chesapeake to come out during the long blockade of captain parker considering the fact that she was too decayed to put to sea had no guns aboard no crew and was in fact laid up the feat of the tenedos was not very wonderful a rowboat could have blockaded her quite as well it is worth noticing as an instance of the way james alters a fact by suppressing half of it and a footnote meanwhile rogers cruised along the eastern edge of the grand bank until he reached latitude forty-eight degrees without meeting anything then stood to the southeast and cruised off the azores till june sixth then he crowded sail to the northeast after a jamaica fleet of which he had received news but which he failed to overtake and on june thirteenth in latitude forty six degrees longitude twenty eight degrees he gave up the chase and shaped his course toward the north sea still without any good luck befalling him on june twenty seventh he put into north bergen in the shetlands for water and thence passed the orkneys and stretched toward the north cape hoping to intercept the archangel fleet on july nineteenth when off the north cape in latitude seventy one degrees thirty two minutes north longitude twenty degrees eighteen minutes east he fell in with two sail of the enemy who made chase after four days pursuit the commodore ran his opponents out of sight according to his letter the two sail were a line of battleship and a frigate according to james they were the twelve-pounder frigate alexandria captain cathcart and spitfire sixteen captain ellis james quotes from the logs of the two british ships and it would seem that he is correct as it would not be possible for him to falsify the logs so utterly in case he is true it was certainly carrying caution to an excessive degree for the commodore to retreat before getting some idea of what his antagonists really were his mistaking them for so much heavier ships was a precisely similar error to that made by sir george collier and lord stuart on a later date about the cayenne and levant james wishes to prove that each party perceived the force of the other and draws a contrast page three hundred twelve between the gallantry of one party and pusillanimity of the other this is nonsense and as in similar cases james overreaches himself by proving too much if he had made an eighteen-pounder frigate like the congress flee from another eighteen-pounder his narrative would be within the bounds of possibility and would need serious examination but the little twelve-pounder alexandria and the ship sloop with her eighteen-pound carronades would not have stood the ghost of a chance in the contest any man who would have been afraid of them would also have been afraid of the little belt the sloop rogers captured before the war 
as for captains cathcart and ellis had they known the force of the president and chased her with a view of attacking her their conduct would have only been explicable on the ground that they were afflicted with emotional insanity the president now steered southward and got into the mouth of the irish channel on august second she shifted her berth and almost circled ireland then steered across to newfoundland and worked south along the coast on september twenty third a little south of nantucket she decoyed under her guns and captured the british schooner high flyer six lieutenant william hutchinson and forty-five men and went into newport on the twenty seventh of the same month having made some twelve prizes on may twenty fourth commodore decatur in the united states which had sent ashore six carronades and now mounted but forty-eight guns accompanied by captain jones in the macedonian thirty-eight and captain biddle in the wasp twenty left new york passing through hellgate as there was a large blockading force off the hook opposite hunter's point the main mast of the states was struck by lightning which cut off the broad pendant shot down the hatchway into the doctor's cabin put out his candle ripped up the bed and entering between the skin and ceiling of the ship tore off two or three sheets of copper near the water-line and disappeared without leaving a trace the macedonian which was close behind hove all aback in expectation of seeing the states blown up at the end of the sound commodore decatur anchored to watch for a chance of getting out early on june first he started but in a couple of hours met the british captain r d oliver's squadron consisting of a seventy four a razee and a frigate these chased him back and all his three ships ran into new london here in the mud of the thames river the two frigates remained blockaded till the close of the war but the little sloop slipped out later to the enemy's cost we left the chesapeake thirty eight being fitted out at boston by captain james lawrence late of the hornet most of a crew as already stated their time being up left dissatisfied with the ship's ill luck and angry at not having received their due share of prize money it was very hard to get sailors most of the men preferring to ship in some of the numerous privateers where the discipline was less strict and the chance of prize money much greater in consequence of this an unusually large number of foreigners had to be taken including about forty british and a number of portuguese the latter were peculiarly troublesome one of their number a boatswain's mate finally almost brought about a mutiny among the crew which was only pacified by giving the men prize checks a few of the constitution's old crew came aboard and these together with some of the men who had been on the chesapeake during her former voyage made an excellent nucleus such men needed very little training at either guns or sails but the new hands were unpractised and came on board so late that the last draft 
that arrived still had their hammocks and bags lying in the boats stowed over the booms when the ship was captured the officers were largely new to the ship though the first lieutenant mr a ludlow had been the third in her former cruise the third and fourth lieutenants were not regularly commissioned as such but were only midshipmen acting for the first time in higher positions captain lawrence himself was of course new to all both officers and crew footnote on the day on which he sailed to attack the shannon lawrence writes to the secretary of the navy as follows lieutenant page is so ill as to be unable to go to sea with the ship at the urgent request of acting lieutenant pierce i have granted him also permission to go on shore one inducement for my granting his request was his being at variance with every officer in his mess captain's letters volume twenty nine number one in the naval archives at washington neither officers nor men had shaken together and a footnote in other words the chesapeake possessed good material but in an exceedingly unseasoned state meanwhile the british frigate shannon thirty eight captain philip bowes verbroke was cruising off the mouth of the harbor to give some idea of the reason why she proved herself so much more formidable than her british sister frigates it may be well to quote slightly condensing from james there was another point in which the generality of british crews as compared with any one american crew were miserably deficient that is skill in the art of gunnery while the american seamen were constantly firing at marks the british seamen except in particular cases scarcely did so once in a year and some ships could be named on board which not a shot had been fired in this way for upward of three years nor was the fault wholly the captain's the instructions under which he was bound to act forbade him to use during the first six months after the ship had received her armament more shots per month than amounted to a third in number of the upper deck guns and after these six months only half the quantity many captains never put a shot in their gun till an enemy appeared they employed the leisure time of the men in handling the sails and in decorating the ship captain broke was not one of this kind from the day on which he had joined her the fourteenth of september eighteen o six the shannon began to feel the effect of her captain's proficiency as a gunner and zeal for the service the laying of the ship's ordnance so that it may be correctly fired in a horizontal direction is justly deemed a most important operation as upon it depends in a great measure the true aim and destructive effect of the shot this was attended to by captain broke in person by drafts from other ships and the usual means to which a british man-of-war is obliged to resort the shannon got together a crew and in the course of a year or two by the paternal care and excellent regulations of captain broke the ship's company became as pleasant to command as it was dangerous to meet 
the shannon's guns were all carefully sighted and moreover every day for about an hour and a half in the forenoon when not prevented by chase or the state of the weather the men were exercised at training the guns and for the same time in the afternoon in the use of the broadsword pike musket etc twice a week the crew fired at targets both with great guns and musketry and captain broke as an additional stimulus beyond the emulation excited gave a pound of tobacco to every man that put a shot through the bull's-eye he would frequently have a cask thrown overboard and suddenly order some one gun to be manned to sink the cask in short the shannon was very greatly superior thanks to her careful training to the average british frigate of a rate while the chesapeake owing to her having a raw and inexperienced crew was decidedly inferior to the average american frigate of the same strength in force the two frigates compared pretty equally footnote taking each commander's account for his own force and footnote the american being the superior in just about the same proportion that the wasp was to the frolic or at a later date the hornet to the penguin the chesapeake carried fifty guns twenty-six in broadside twenty-eight long eighteens on the gun deck and on the spar deck two long twelves one long eighteen eighteen thirty-two pound carronades and one twelve pound carronade which was not used in the fight however her broadside allowing for the short weight of metal was five hundred forty two pounds her complement three hundred seventy nine men the shannon earned fifty two guns twenty six in broadside twenty eight long eighteens on the gun deck and on the spar deck four long nines one long six sixteen thirty two pound carronades and three twelve pound carronades two of which were not used in the fight her broadside was five hundred fifty pounds her crew consisted of three hundred thirty men thirty of whom were raw hands early in the morning of june first captain broke sent in to captain lawrence by an american prisoner a letter of challenge which for courteousness manliness and candour is the very model of what such an epistle should be before it reached boston however captain lawrence had weighed anchor to attack the shannon which frigate was in full sight in the offing it has been often said that he engaged against his judgment but this may be doubted his experience with the bon citienne espiegel and peacock had not tended to give him a very high idea of the navy to which he was opposed and there is no doubt that he was confident of capturing the shannon footnote in his letter written just before sailing already quoted on page one hundred seventy seven he says an english frigate is now in sight from our deck i am in hopes to give a good account of her before night my account of the action is mainly taken from james's naval history and brighton's memoir of admiral broke according to which the official letter of captain broke was tampered with see also the letter of lieutenant george budd june fifteenth eighteen thirteen the report of the court of inquiry 
Commodore Bainbridge presiding, and the court-martial held on board frigate United States, April 15, 1814, Commodore Decatur presiding, end of footnote. It was most unfortunate that he did not receive Broke's letter, as the latter in it expressed himself willing to meet Lawrence in any latitude and longitude he might appoint, and there would thus have been some chance of the American crew having time enough to get into shape. At midday on June 1st, 1813, the Chesapeake weighed anchor, stood out of Boston Harbor, and at 1 p.m. rounded the lighthouse. The Shannon stood off under easy sail, and at 3.40 Shannon up and reefed topsails. At 4 p.m. she again bore away, with her foresail brailed up, and her main topsail braced flat and shivering, that the Chesapeake might overtake her. An hour later, Boston Lighthouse bearing west distant about six leagues, she again hauled up with her head to the southeast and lay to under topsails, topgallant sails, jib and spanker. Meanwhile, as the breeze freshened, the Chesapeake took in her studding sails, topgallant sails and royals, got her royal yards on deck and came down very fast under topsails and jib. At five-thirty, to keep under command and be able to wear if necessary, the Shannon filled her main topsail and kept a close luff, and then again let the sail shiver. At five-twenty-five, the Chesapeake hauled up her foresail and, with three ensigns flying, steered straight for the Shannon's starboard quarter. Broke was afraid that Lawrence would pass under the Shannon's stern rake her and engage her on the quarter, but either overlooking or waiving this advantage, the American captain luffed up within fifty yards upon the Shannon's starboard quarter and squared his main yard. On board the Shannon, the captain of the fourteenth gun, William Mindham, had been ordered not to fire till it bore into the second main deck port forward. At 5.50 it was fired, and then the other guns in quick succession from aft forward, the Chesapeake replying with her whole broadside. At 5.53 Lawrence, finding he was forging ahead, hauled up a little. The Chesapeake's broadsides were doing great damage, but she herself was suffering even more than her foe. The men in the Shannon's tops could hardly see the deck of the American frigate, through the cloud of splinters, hammocks, and other wreck that was flying across it. Man after man was killed at the wheel. The fourth lieutenant, the master, and the boatswain were slain. And at 5.56, having her jib, sheet, and foretop sail tie shot away, and her spanker brails loosened, so that the sail blew out, the Chesapeake came up into the wind somewhat, so as to expose her quarter to her antagonist's broadside, which beat in her stern ports and swept the men from the after-guns. One of the arm-chests on the quarter-deck was blown up by a hand-grenade thrown from the Shannon. Footnote. This explosion may have had more effect than is commonly supposed in the capture of the Chesapeake. 
Commodore Bainbridge, writing from Charleston, Massachusetts, on June 2nd, 1813, see Captain's Letters, Volume 29, Number 10, says, Mr. Knox, the pilot on board, left the Chesapeake at 5 p.m. At 6 p.m., Mr. Knox informs me the fire opened and at 12 minutes past 6, both ships were laying alongside one another as if in an act of boarding at that moment an explosion took place on board the chesapeake which spread a fire on her upper deck from the foremast to the mizzenmast as high as her tops and enveloped both ships in smoke for several minutes after it cleared away they were seen separate with the british flag hoisted on board the chesapeake over the american James denies that the explosion was caused by a hand-grenade, though he says there were some of these aboard the Shannon. It is a point of no interest. End of footnote. The Chesapeake was now seen to have sternway on, and to be paying slowly off. So the Shannon put her helm astarboard and shivered her mizzen topsail so as to keep off the wind and delay the boarding. But at that moment her jib-stay was shot away, and her head-sails becoming becalmed, she went off very slowly. In consequence, at 6 p.m., the two frigates fell aboard, the Chesapeake's quarter pressing upon the Shannon's side, just forward the starboard's main chains, and the frigates were kept in this position by the fluke of the Shannon's anchor, catching in the Chesapeake's quarter-port. The Shannon's crew had suffered severely, but not the least panic or disorder existed among them. Broke ran forward, and, seeing his foes flinching from the quarter-deck guns, he ordered the ships to be lashed together, the great guns to cease firing, and the boarders to be called. The boatswain, who had fought in Rodney's action, set about fastening the vessels together, which the grim veteran succeeded in doing, though his right arm was literally hacked off by a blow from a cutlass. All was confusion and dismay on board the Chesapeake. Lieutenant Ludlow had been mortally wounded and carried below. Lawrence himself, while standing on the quarter-deck, fatally conspicuous by his full-dress uniform and commanding stature, was shot down as the vessels closed by lieutenant law of the british marines he fell dying and was carried below exclaiming don't give up the ship a phrase that has since become proverbial among his countrymen the third lieutenant mr w s cox came on deck but utterly demoralized by the aspect of affairs he basely ran below without staying to rally the men and was court-martialed afterward for so doing at six o two captain broke stepped from the shannon's gangway rail on to the muzzle of the chesapeake's aftermost carronade and thence over the bulwark on to her quarter-deck followed by about twenty men as they came aboard the chesapeake's foreign mercenaries and the raw natives of the crew deserted their quarters the Portuguese boatswain's mate removed the gratings of the berth-deck, and he ran below, followed by many of the crew, 
among them one of the midshipmen named de forest on the quarter-deck almost the only man that made any resistance was the chaplain mr livermore who advanced firing his pistol at broke and in return nearly had his arm hewed off by a stroke from the latter's broad toledo blade on the upper deck the only men who behaved well were the marines but of their original number of forty-four fourteen including lieutenant james broom and corporal dixon were dead and twenty including sergeants twin and harris wounded so that there were left but one corporal and nine men several of whom had been knocked down and bruised though reported unwounded there was thus hardly any resistance captain broke stopping his men for a moment till they were joined by the rest of the boarders under lieutenants watt and falconer the chesapeake's mizzen topmen began firing at the boarders mortally wounding a midshipman mr samwell and killing lieutenant watt but one of the shannon's long nines was pointed at the top and cleared it out being assisted by the english main topman under the midshipman koshnahan at the same time the men of the chesapeake's main top were driven out of it by the fire of the shannon's foretopman under midshipman smith lieutenant george budd who was on the main deck now for the first time learned that the english had boarded as the upper deck men came crowding down and at once called on his people to follow him but the foreigners and novices held back and only a few of the veterans followed him up as soon as he reached the spar deck bud followed by only a dozen men attacked the british as they came along the gangways repulsing them for a moment and killing the british purser aldham and captain's clerk dunn but the handful of americans were at once cut down or dispersed lieutenant budd being wounded and knocked down the main hatchway the enemy writes captain broke fought desperately but in disorder lieutenant ludlow already mortally wounded struggled up on deck followed by two or three men but was at once disabled by a sabre cut on the forecastle a few seamen and marines turned to bay captain broke was still leading his men with the same brilliant personal courage he had all along shown attacking the first american who was armed with a pike he parried a blow from it and cut down the man attacking another he was himself cut down and only saved by the, the seaman mindham already mentioned who slew his assailant one of the american marines using his clubbed musket killed an englishman and so stubborn was the resistance of the little group that for a moment the assailants gave back having lost several killed and wounded but immediately afterward they closed in and slew their foes to the last man the british fired a volley or two down the hatchway in response to a couple of shots fired up all resistance was at an end and at six o five just fifteen minutes after the first gun had been fired and not five after captain broke had come aboard the colors of the chesapeake were struck of her crew three hundred seventy nine men sixty one were killed or mortally wounded 
including her captain, her first and fourth lieutenants, the lieutenant of marines, the master, White, Boatswain Adams, and three midshipmen, and eighty-five severely and slightly wounded, including both her other lieutenants, five midshipmen and the chaplain, total 148, the loss falling almost entirely upon the American portion of the crew. Of the Shannon's men, thirty-three were killed outright or died of their wounds, including her first lieutenant, purser, captain's clerk, and one midshipman, and fifty wounded, including the captain himself and the boatswain, total eighty-three. The Chesapeake was taken into Halifax, where Captain Lawrence and Lieutenant Ludlow were both buried with military honors. Captain Broke was made a baronet very deservedly, and Lieutenants Wallace and Faulkner were both made commanders. The British writers accuse some of the American crew of treachery. The Americans, in turn, accuse the British of revolting brutality. Of course, in such a fight, things are not managed with urbane courtesy, and, moreover, writers are prejudiced. Those who would like to hear one side are referred to James, if they wish to hear the other, to the various letters from officers published in Niles' Register, especially Volume 5, page 142. The Chesapeake was struck by twenty-nine 18-pound shot, twenty-five 32-pound shot, two 9-pound shot, and 306 grape, for a total of 362 shot. The Shannon was struck by 12 18-pound shot, 13 32-pound shot, 14 bar shot, 119 grape, for a total of 158 shot. Neither ship had lost a spar, but all the lower masts, especially the two mizzen masts, were badly wounded. The Americans at that period were fond of using bar shot, which were of very questionable benefit, being useless against a ship's hull, though said to be sometimes of great help in unrigging an antagonist, from whom one was desirous of escaping, as in the case of the President and Andimion. It is thus seen that the Shannon received, from shot alone, only about half the damage the Chesapeake did. The latter was thoroughly beaten at the guns, in spite of what some American authors say to the contrary. Her victory was not in the slightest degree to be attributed to, though it may have been slightly hastened by accident. Training and discipline won the victory, as often before. Only in this instance the training and discipline were against us. It is interesting to notice that the Chesapeake battered the Shannon's hull far more than either the Java, Guerriere, or Macedonian did the hulls of their opponents, and that she suffered less in return, not in loss but in damage, than they did. The Chesapeake was a better fighter than either the Java, Guerriere, or Macedonian, and could have captured any one of them. The Shannon, of course, did less damage than any of the American 44s, probably just about in the proportion 
of the difference in force. Almost all American writers have treated the capture of the Chesapeake as if it were due simply to a succession of unfortunate accidents. For example, Cooper, with his usual cheerful optimism, says that the incidents of the battle, excepting its short duration, are altogether the results of the chances of war, and that it was mainly decided by fortuitous events as unconnected with any particular merit on the one side as they are with any particular demerit on the other. Footnote. The worth of such an explanation is very aptly gauged in General Alexander S. Webbs's The Peninsula, McClellan's Campaign of 1862, New York, 1881, page 35, where he speaks of those unforeseen or uncontrollable agencies which are vaguely described as the fortune of war, but which usually prove to be the superior ability or resources of the antagonist. End of footnote. Most naval men consider it a species of treason to regard the defeat as due to anything but extraordinary ill fortune. And yet no disinterested reader can help acknowledging that the true reason of the defeat was the very simple one that the Shannon fought better than the Chesapeake. It has often been said that up to the moment when the ships came together the loss and damage suffered by each were about the same. This is not true, and even if it was, would not affect the question. The heavy loss on board the Shannon did not confuse or terrify the thoroughly trained men with their implicit reliance on their leaders. The experienced officers were ready to defend any point that was menaced. An equal or greater amount of loss aboard the Chesapeake disheartened and confused the raw crew, who simply had not had the time or chance to become well disciplined. Many of the old hands, of course, kept their wits and their pluck, but the novices and the disaffected did not. Similarly with the officers, some, as the Court of Inquiry found, had not kept to their posts, and all being new to each other and the ship could not show to their best. There is no doubt that the Chesapeake was beaten at the guns before she was boarded. Had the ships not come together, the fight would have been longer, the loss greater, and more nearly equal. But the result would have been the same. Cooper says that the enemy entered with great caution, and so slowly that twenty resolute men could have repulsed him. It was no proof of caution for Captain Broke and his few followers to leap on board, unsupported, and then they only waited for the main body to come up, and no twenty men could have repulsed such boarders as followed Broke. The fight was another lesson, with the parties reversed to the effect that want of training and discipline is a bad handicap. Had the Chesapeake's crew been in service as many months as the Shannon had been years, such a captain as Lawrence would have had his men perfectly in hand. They would not have been cowed by their losses, nor some of the officers too demoralized to act properly, and the material advantages which the Chesapeake possessed, although not very great, 
would probably have been enough to give her a good chance of victory. It is well worth noticing that the only thoroughly disciplined set of men aboard, all, according to James himself, by the way, Native Americans, namely the Marines, did excellently, as shown by the fact that three-fourths of their number were among the killed and wounded. The foreigners aboard the Chesapeake did not do as well as the Americans, but it is nonsense to ascribe the defeat in any way to them. It was only rendered rather more disastrous by their actions. Most of the English authors give very fair accounts of the battle, except that they hardly allude to the peculiar disadvantages under which the Chesapeake suffered when she entered into it. Thus James thinks the Java was unprepared because she had only been to sea six weeks, but does not lay any weight on the fact that the Chesapeake had been out only as many hours. Altogether, the best criticism on the fight is that written by Monsieur de la Gravière. Footnote. Guerres Maritimes, volume 2, page 272. End of footnote. It is impossible to avoid seeing in the capture of the Chesapeake a new proof of the enormous power of a good organization, when it has received the consecration of a few years' actual service on the sea. On this occasion, in effect, two captains equally renowned, the honor of two navies, were opposed to each other on two ships of the same tonnage and number of guns. Never had the chances seemed better balanced, but Sir Philip Broke had commanded the Shannon for nearly seven years, while Captain Lawrence had only commanded the Chesapeake for a few days. The first of these frigates had cruised for eighteen months on the coast of America. The second was leaving port. One had a crew long accustomed to habits of strict obedience. The other was manned by men who had just been engaged in mutiny. The Americans were wrong to accuse Fortune on this occasion. Fortune was not fickle. She was merely logical. The Shannon captured the Chesapeake on the 1st of June, 1813, but on the 14th of September, 1806, the day when he took command of his frigate, Captain Broke had begun to prepare the glorious termination to this bloody affair. Hard as it is to breathe the word against such a man as Lawrence, a very Bayard of the seas, who was admired as much for his dauntless bravery as he was loved for his gentleness and uprightness. It must be confessed that he acted rashly, and after he had sailed it was, as Lord Howard Douglas has pointed out, a tactical error. However, chivalric to neglect the chance of luffing across the Shannon's stern to rake her, exactly as it was a tactical error of his equally chivalrous antagonist to have let him have such an opportunity. Hull would not have committed either error, and would, for the matter of that, have been an overmatch for either commander. But it must always be remembered that Lawrence's encounters with the English had not been such as to give him a high opinion of them. 
the only foe he had fought had been inferior in strength it is true but had hardly made any effective resistance another sloop of equal if not superior force had tamely submitted to blockade for several days and had absolutely refused to fight and there can be no doubt that the chesapeake unprepared though she was would have been an overmatch for the guerriere macedonian or java altogether it is hard to blame lawrence for going out and in every other respect his actions never have been nor will be mentioned by either friend or foe without the warmest respect but that is no reason for insisting that he was ruined purely by an adverse fate end of part eight